with me and turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 9. 1 Chronicles chapter 9. You follow as I read the first two verses. So all Israel was recorded in genealogies, and these are written in the book of the kings of Israel. And Judah was taken into exile in Babylon because of their breach of faith. Now the first to dwell again in their possessions in their cities were Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the temple servants. Let's pray. Lord God of heaven, thank you again that we can be here together to encourage one another, to worship you, to delight in you, and to hear you speak to us from your word. Give us ears to hear today so that, Lord, we might be more attentive to your word, and, Lord, we might even be able to understand it better. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever read a book of the Bible and then asked yourself, why is this book here? Why did God put this book in the Bible? If you haven't asked that question, I would say to you, and those of you who've heard me in Sunday school know what I'm going to say, you should always ask that question. What's the purpose of this book? Why is it here? Because if you ask that question, you'll be able to understand the Word of God better. Now, the answer to that question is sometimes easy. When I read the book of John, the Gospel of John, it's very easy because at the end of the book, and John has a tendency to tell you why he wrote a book after he's done writing it, But John says, I've written these things that you may know, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Okay? That's why the book of John is there. When you look at the book of Romans, you see the book of Romans was a letter written to the Roman church as Paul. It's a missionary letter. Paul's seeking support. And so he writes this letter, and he explains what the gospel is that he's preaching. We look at the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation is written so that you might find comfort in the fact that the Lamb triumphs. It's the triumph of the Lamb. The book of Hebrews was written so that you wouldn't abandon Jesus, so that you wouldn't just say, it's too hard to follow Jesus, I'm done. It's written to to keep you persevering by showing you that Jesus is superior to anything and anyone that's out there, and you can't find anything that, that you can put your trust in. You see, God has a purpose for every book in the Bible. It's there for a reason. So now here's my question. What is the purpose of First and Second Chronicles? Why did God include these books in the canon of Scripture? Now, we're going to explore some of First and Second Chronicles. I'm going to tell you right now, I'm, I'm guessing, I'm guessing since it, t- it, it will take about a year to preach through them, I'm not going to be here for that long. So what I want to do is to just go hop, skip, and jump through some of the stories in the Chronicles in order to encourage you. But the point is, why did God include First and Second Chronicles in the canon of Scripture? And today I want to begin to answer that question. What is the purpose of those books? And in order to do that, we're going to have to investigate some things today. Now, Whenever I introduce a book, I do this, and sometimes I feel a little bit uncomfortable because it's not exactly like preaching. It still is preaching, but it can be kind of lean toward a lecture, and I don't want to lecture you. So bear with me. It's a preaching lecture, all right? But I hope that going through this, you'll learn some things 
and maybe even learn how to study your Bible a little bit better. So here we go. Now these two books were originally one book called The Chronicles. It's just one book. Now in the century before Jesus, Greek, um, most people spoke Greek. Most people spoke Greek. That included the Jews who'd been dispersed throughout all the world. Greek was the common language of the known world. It, it, was, the, it was the universal language. It's kind of like English is today. When I go to Romania or um, Albania or any of those countries where I've been, I don't worry too much because on the plane they give, if it's like Air France, they'll give everything in French and then you know what they do? They give all the instructions in English, okay? No matter who, who you're flying with. When you get to the airport, no matter where that airport is in the world, you always see things in the native language and then you got English, all right? So English, like Greek of that day, is the universal language. So Greek was the universal language. And most of the Jews had been dispersed around the world for generations now, didn't even know Hebrew. They didn't know Hebrew any longer. Greek was their language. And so about 100 years, a little bit less than 100 years before Jesus was born, some scholars in Alexandria, Egypt, got together in order to translate the Hebrew scriptures into Greek so the Hebrews could have the Bible in the language that they spoke. Um, now, this book was too large to fit on one scroll, and so it was copied on two scrolls. And thus, the Chronicles became first and second chronicles. But if you're reading it, don't treat them as two books. They're one large book. Now here's another interesting thing that you need to understand. The Chronicles was the last book of the Old Testament. Now in the English, and by the way, the order of the books is not inspired. Okay, We could arrange them differently and God wouldn't be angry with us. But if I were to take my Hebrew Bible off of my shelf in my office, you would see it starts with Genesis and it ends with Chronicles. Chronicles is the very last book of the Old Testament. And you see that in Jesus' day. For example, let's look at something. Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23. Um, Matthew 23, beginning in verse 33. This is Jesus taking the Pharisees apart. Um, beginning in verse 33. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Now Jesus is saying here, you're guilty all the blood from the first murder recorded in the Old Testament to the very last one. The very last one? Yeah, look at Second Chronicles now. Second Chronicles chapter 24. Now, we're going to come across the name Jehoiada, which or Berechiah, um, no Jehoiada, which is another name for Berechiah. Second um, Chronicles twenty-four, verse twenty. Then the Spirit of God clothed Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, back uh, Berechiah, as Jesus calls him, uh, 
And he stood above the people and said to them, Thus says God, Why do you break the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. But they conspired against him, and by command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. Now, so this is the last murder recorded, because it's the last book of the Bible. It's the last book of the Hebrew Bible. So Jesus makes reference to the first murder of the Bible and the last one of the Old Testament, the Bible of his day. So it's the last book. It's the very last book in the Hebrew Old Testament. But when was it written, and who wrote it? When was it written? Well, we're not sure who wrote it, because we never, he never identifies himself, but it's probable he was a Levite. Now, what are the Levites? You remember the Levites were the tribe that were set apart to take care of all the tabernacle and the temple. They had the duty of taking care of all those, and that involved its worship from composing and singing songs to guarding the gates, to providing everything necessary for the sacrifices that were brought in. The Levites were the ones whose life revolved around the temple. And when you read the Chronicles, as we're going to see, he spends a lot of time talking about the Levites and the temple. It takes up a lot of space in this book. Now this un- unknown Levite wrote the book probably about 100 years After the Jews, remember the Jews are in Babylon in exile, about a hundred years after they returned to the land, this book was written. So that is to say, you remember we've been in Haggai, that's the first thing I preached to you, the book of Haggai. About a hundred years after Haggai, this book was written, okay? Now you remember the story of the people of God. They've been delivered from Egypt, right? Freed from their slavery, to head to the promised land. Because of their sin, they wander 40 years in the wilderness. Then they go in and conquer the land. You remember they have a, about 400 years of just being a loose confederation of tribes where they were getting into fights with one another and civil war and all kinds of terrible things. And they would always, God would always send these foreign powers in to discipline them. They would return to the Lord, go back into idolatry, return to the Lord, and so forth until we come to First and Second Samuel, where the kingdom is now united under one king by the name of Saul, who proved unfaithful. He was replaced by David. And the kingdom reaches its zenith of power and influence under Solomon. But then after Solomon, his successor Rehoboam um, blows it, and the kingdom separates. You remember, the ten tribes in the north become the nation of Israel, And the two tribes, which are Judah and Benjamin, remain in the south, and they become the kingdom of Judah. Now, because of their unfaithfulness, um, the northern kingdom is wiped off the map in 722 B.C. They're carried off by the Assyrians, okay? And the southern kingdom, about 150 years later, because of their unfaithfulness, are carted off to Babylon, exiled. The nation disappears. There's no longer any Jewish nation. Now, the Persians conquer the Babylonians. And you all know this from the book of Daniel. Daniel's in Babylon. The Persians come and they wipe out Babylon. And he begins to serve a Persian ruler. When the Persians became a world power, Cyrus the emperor issued this edict that says, and I think he's, he's just trying to cover his bases. He says, uh, your God told me to send you back and rebuild the temple. I really think he was just trying to cover all his bases and say, i got to make sure i got all the gods in my favor. 
Be that as it may, this is where um, you remember Zerubbabel and um, Joshua, the high priest, lead a group of people back to the land. They now are living back in the land. And the writer of this book um, wrote this sometime after that return. He wrote it sometime after that return. When we look again at chapter 9 of 1 Chronicles, chapter 9, right? If you read the, you know what's really interesting about preaching through Chronicles? Is the first eight chapters are nothing but genealogy. I don't know if you figured it out yet, but I have preached through this before. And my first sermon was on the first nine chapters. The people, our folks in LaRue, were absolutely amazed at that. But notice what it says. Saul Israel was recorded in genealogies, and these are written in the book of the kings of Judah, of Israel. And Judah was taken into exile in Babylon because of their breach of faith. Now the first to dwell again in their possessions in their cities were, were Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the temple servants. And, and we're going to come back to this. Notice this. And some of the people of Judah, Benjamin, Ephraim, and Manasseh, lived in Jerusalem. Who's Ephraim and Manasseh? Well, they're part of the northern kingdom. That's been gone for a couple hundred years now. But we'll come back to that. That's going to prove important. So God's people are back in the land. But they're under a foreign government, a small, defeated, defeated, seemingly abandoned people. And so they're asking this question, how do we understand God now? How do we understand who God is? He seems to have abandoned us. He seems to have no mercy. How should we relate to this God? They no doubt ask the question, how should we understand God's purposes? Because frankly, what happened to the promise to Abraham? What happened to the promise to David of a son ascending the throne and ruling in his kingdom forever? What happened to that promise? We're nothing more than a province in this huge Persian empire. We have no king, right? So what is God's purpose for us now? And the chronicler responds to that question by writing a history of this people. Okay? In essence, he says, if you want to know God's purposes for us and how to relate to this covenant God, you have to look at our history. That will tell you. If you look at our history, it will tell you what God has in mind for us. Now, he's not merely interested in recording the events of this history, but he wants to write history with a particular point of view. This is history with a lesson. Some of you who are in Sunday school are saying, yeah, 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 we heard all this before. All right? He's writing history with a lesson. Uh, By the way, whenever you read history in the Bible, it's not just giving you a whole bunch of, of events. The writer is always trying to make a point. He's trying to tell you a story that has a point to it, a lesson to be learned. And the same thing is true with the chronicler. Now, here's what's interesting. If you've read through your Bibles, okay, if you've read through your Bibles, you know that First and Second Chronicles sounds a little bit like First and, first and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, but it's still different. It's not the same. It's not just a rehash of what you read in those books. And, and why is that? Because he wants to make a point. He's making a point with his story, a particular point of view. Now, does that mean he distorts the history in order to make his point? No, not at all. You know, we, we, we always say we can learn lessons from our history, right? 
Can you learn lessons from U.S. history? And the answer is sure. Sure you can. You can, you can, um, you can say this. You can study our history of the United States and say, our history teaches us that we are a nation that's always been interested in freedom. And I think you can make that point pretty easily. See, if you study our history, you're going to see that, that we've always been a people that just seem to be fixated on this idea of freedom. But then you could also say, our history teaches us that when we move away from our founding principles, our nation seems to suffer. You can also, and you can study our history with that point of view in mind. Now, you can make that point of you can make that point with one view of history. You can make another point with the other view of history. But you're not distorting the history to make that point. You're choosing certain incidents that that tell us those things. Incidents in our history. So you're not distorting history. And the same thing is true with the writer of the Chronicles. But you see, different writers had different purposes in writing. So turn back to Second Kings. All right, turn back to Second Kings. Chapter 17. 2 Kings 17. I'm going to begin reading in verse 14. But they, he's talking about the northern ten tribes of Israel. But they would not listen. They would not listen to the prophets. They would not listen to the law. They would not listen to anything God said. But they... Israel, the northern kingdom, would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false, and they followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves, they made, they made an Asherah and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Now, the historian of First and King, First and Second Kings, wanted to prove from their history that sin leads to judgment. Unfaithfulness to the covenant brought the curse of God. That's the point of First and Second Kings. That's what he wants. The lesson he wants you to get. Look at our history. Here's what you find: that if you aren't faithful to the covenant, God brings down the curses of that covenant. But our chronicler looks at the very same history and says, the history of our people and its relationship with God ought to give us hope in these dark days in which we find ourselves. It ought to give us hope. You see, the chronicler records the history of Israel and from it draws this conclusion. God's purpose is the restoration of one people united around one king joyfully worshiping at one temple. All right? That's what, he, that's what the purpose of this book is. There is hope because God's intention for us is that we, um, 
We are united as one people under one king, worshiping joyfully at one temple. That's the purpose of the book. The whole book pulsates with that theme. To a people under a foreign king, he says, our history proves that God intends for us a restoration of one people under one king, worshiping at one temple. As we look at our history, that's what it is. And by the way, what about that one king? What about that one king? Why is he emphasized the one king? Here's why. Here's another thing that you're only going to see in Chronicles. Now, when you read First and Second Kings, I remember as a little boy, we used to have these things called Sunday school quarterlies, and they were little booklets that we would fill out. And my mom and dad, and, and so we'd fill them out for our Sunday school class. And, and so I can remember reading through First and Second Kings. It's like, ah, right? Because how does First and Second Kings go? It says, so this king of Judah reigned and ruled. And then he was a good king. And then this king of Israel in the north, he ruled. He was a bad king. And then this king ruled in Judah. He was a bad king. And this king in Israel ruled, and he was a bad king. And then this other good king came along. He was good. And then this king in the north was a bad king. And on and on it went. But if you read the Chronicles, you know what you're going to see? The kings of the north aren't even mentioned. It's not even mentioned. The only kings mentioned in the Chronicles are the descendants of David. That's all. He's not interested in the kings of the north. All right? Not like first and second kings, but the kings of the south. And by the way, when you read the history, here's what you find. That the, he centers on the Davidic line completely, totally, entirely in Chronicles. Only David. That's all he talks about. All right? That's all he talks about is just the line of David. When you read the history of Israel, you know what you see? You see all these different dynasties. There's a bunch of different dynasties, and there's a ton of military coups. If you read First and Second Kings, you see that this dynasty reigns, and then this general takes over, kills the ruling family, and starts another dynasty, only to be overthrown later, and another dynasty started. But when you read First and Second Chronicles, there's one dynasty. That's it, the Davidic line. Because the Davidic line in Judah was unbroken. Okay? And so that's all you hear about are Davidic kings. And see, I don't know, maybe you didn't notice that. That's, the, that's where the one king theme comes. It's all about the promise of a king. And so that still remains the purpose of God for this book. And it remains the purpose of God for us as we study that. We have to study that book with that theme in mind. God's intention is that we look at the history revealed here and see God working to the end of producing one people living under the reign of one king, joyfully worshiping at one temple. That's the theme that we have to pursue in this. In the history of Israel, you find the patterns of God's future blessings. Now, I don't know about you, but already ringing in your minds, I can tell by your faces, already ringing in your minds is, I get it. One people, one king, one temple, aha! Where does that take us? Yeah, I know. You're not supposed to answer when I'm preaching. I get it. That's okay. That's all right. It obviously takes us to Jesus, right? That's exactly where, and isn't it interesting that all this is coming out in the last book of the Old Testament? 
right? This idea. So the last book of the Old Testament is leaving with the people, the Jewish people, this idea. God's intention has always been one people under one king worshiping at one temple. That's always been God's intention. Look at our history. You can see it. And that's going to point us right straight to the future. Right straight to Jesus. And so we can look at Jesus in Luke 24 where he says, I took, he took those two disciples, you remember, he took them from Genesis to, to Chronicles and showed them how he was a part. He's, he's the one that's seen in the whole Old Testament. Right here is a great example. This whole book is along those themes. This is what the writer of the Chronicles wanted everybody to get. All right? All right. So let's take it apart a little bit. God wants you to see that he produces a single people of God. He produces a single people of God. Throughout the book, you see the chronicler telling us that the king sees the people as one, or he attempts to bring them together as one. Okay? The king sees the people as one, or he attempts to draw them together as one. So let's take a look. Look at 2 Chronicles chapter 11. 2 Chronicles chapter 11. All right. Let's look at verses 13 through 17. And the priests and Levites who were in all Israel presented themselves to him from all places where they lived. That's presented themselves to the king. For the Levites left their common lands and their holdings and came to Judah and Jerusalem because Jeroboam and his sons cast them out from serving as priests of the Lord. And he appointed his own priests for the high places and for the goat idols and for the calves that he had made. And those who had set their hearts to seek the Lord God of Israel came after them from all the tribes of Israel to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord, the God of their fathers. They strengthened the kingdom of Judah, and for three years they made Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, secure, for they walked for three years in the way of David and Solomon. Now this is right after the rebellion of the northern kingdom. And what do you see happening? You see people coming down to the one temple One people at one temple. This is the one people. Even after the division, there's people coming from the north to be part of it. All right, look at chapter 15. 2 Chronicles chapter 15, verse uh, 9. We'll start in verse 8. As soon as Asa heard these words, the prophecy of Azariah, the son of Oded, He took courage and put away the detestable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin and from the cities that he had taken in the hill country of Ephraim. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was in front of the vestibule of the house of the Lord. And he gathered all Judah and Benjamin and those from Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon who were residing with them for great numbers had deserted to him from Israel when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. Again, one people, right? These people from the north are coming down. They want to be part of the people of God. One people. And by the way, you notice that he's the one who purifies the temple. Now go over to chapter 30. Years now, the northern kingdom is gone. 
It doesn't exist anymore. And here's what Hezekiah does. Hezekiah was probably the second greatest king after David. Okay? Hezekiah was a pretty powerful guy. Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. Again, Israel's wiped off the map. But he's writing a letter to some of the people who were left there. Manasseh and Ephraim are kind of like the catch-all phrase for the northern kingdom. And he invites people from the northern kingdom to come down to this Passover celebration. All right? Uh, Now look at verses 5 through 11. So they decreed to make a proclamation throughout all Israel from Beersheba to Dan. From the southernmost point to the northernmost point, in the northernmost point, there's not a nation there anymore, that the people should come and keep the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel, at Jerusalem, for they had not kept it as often as described. So couriers went throughout all Israel and Judah with letters from the king and his princes, as the king had commanded, saying, O people of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may turn again to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. Do not be like your fathers and your brothers who are faithless to the Lord, God of their fathers, so that he made them a desolation as you see. Do not now be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord and come to his sanctuary, which he has consecrated forever, and serve the Lord your God, that his fierce anger may turn away from you. For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. So the couriers went from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh and as far as Zebulun, but they laughed them to scorn and mocked them. However, some men of Asher, of Manasseh, and Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. What do you see here? You see these rebels returning, going to the south to become part of the people of God. By the way, you see all things here. I don't know if you picked it up. You have one king calling for one people to do what? Worship at this temple, right? You see this. These are the things that are going on. He's inviting them to this Passover celebration at the temple. But I'm just making the point here that God wants you to see that he produces a single people. And that the kings in Chronicles, the Davidic kings are always seeing them as one or trying to gather them as one. So how does God work toward producing a single people for him even in this day? How is he accomplishing that? Turn to Ephesians 2. Ephesians chapter 2. It's a wonderful passage. Um... Verse 11, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called us uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinance that he might create in himself 
one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, Gentiles, and peace to those who are near, Jews, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. All right? So there's one people. How does he produce it? He produces that people through Jesus. The chronicler couldn't see it happening that way, but that's the way God did it. All right? So here's the next thing. God wants you to see that he intends to unite this one people around one king. As you read this book, it becomes evident that the Davidic king is central. The descendants of David, the Davidic king, is absolutely central. Now, I don't think we have to read it again, because um, uh, uh, Caleb read it already. First Chronicles 17. It's the story of David getting his directions. Now, what you read there... David desires to build a temple for the Lord. And as you read through that, the word comes to his prophet, Nathan. Nathan's the court prophet. Nathan's the prophet who works in the, in the court of the king. And he gets a word from God. And that word from God is, David, you're not going to build. You're not going to build a temple. I'm, you're not the man for it. Um, but, but let me tell you what I'm going to do. You're not going to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. I'm going to build a house for you. And I'm going to accomplish it through a son who will build a temple and who will reign forever. Okay? Um, and so, you have this story of this un, unbroken succession of Davidic kings, even to the point that God's faithfulness to that promise is seen in an incredibly dramatic way in chapter 22 of 2 Chronicles. Turn there. 2 Chronicles 22. Now, right off the top of your head, you can't recall this, but it'll all become familiar because it's one of those stories you love to tell the kids. 2 Chronicles chapter 22 in verse 10. Now, when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah saw that her son was dead. She arose and destroyed all the royal family of the house of Judah. But Jehoshabit, the daughter of the king, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were about to be put to death. And she put him and his nurse in a bedroom. Thus Jehoshabit, the daughter of the king, of the king Jehoram, and the wife of Jehoiada the priest, because she was a sister of Ahaziah, hid him from Athaliah so that she did not put him to death. And he remained with them six years, hidden in the house of God, while Athaliah reigned over the land. Now, again, you know what, you know what the writer here wants you to see? God remained true to his promise. Absolutely true. This incredible danger came along in which the whole royal family could have been wiped out. But by God's providence, this king was saved. Now, here's the deal, though. At the time of the writing of this chronicle, okay, at the time of the writing of this chronicle, there was no Davidic king ruling. 
There was none. Now, you remember from Haggai, Zerubbabel, by the way, who's a descendant of David, was only a governor. He wasn't a king. Wasn't a king. What happens to that promise? What's going on, Lord? Where's the promise? Well, how does God remain faithful to that promise? We know it is. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. He's the king. And, you know, we could look, we could just open our books anywhere in the New Testament and we'd see that he was king because he's called Jesus Christ. All right? Okay, footnote here. This is a freebie. It's not in my notes. You know, Christ is not like Jesus' last name. All right? It's not like if you were writing a letter to Jesus, you'd write on Jesus Christ because that's his last name. The word Christ means what? The anointed one. So whenever you say Jesus Christ, you're claiming he's king because that's the Greek word for anointed one. The Hebrew word was Mashiach. What do we get from that? Messiah. Well, when they translated that into Greek, it comes out as Christos, which is the same thing. It's the anointed one. So whenever you open the New Testament, you see Jesus Christ essentially saying Jesus the King. Okay? Jesus the King. In fact, in some of the references you see, it's translated Jesus the Christ. The King. Okay, now what's so important about the King? The King represents God himself to the people. In, in, In the Old Testament, it was the King that was to represent God to his people. Now, let me show you that quickly. First Chronicles chapter 17, the promise to David. Now watch. I want you to see something here. Verse 14. But, I'm sorry, First, First Chronicles chapter 17, verse 14, the promise to David. But I will confirm him, that is David's son, I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. I want you to see something here. What kingdom does the king rule in? Old Testament and even now. What? The Old Testament Israel or Old Testament Judah was what? God's kingdom. The king ruled as God's representative over God's kingdom. 28. First Chronicles 28. Verse 5. And of all my sons, for the Lord had given me many sons, he has chosen Solomon, my son, to sit on, note, the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. Israel's the kingdom of the Lord, and the king rules in the place of God. Chapter 29, verse 23. Then Solomon sat on what? On what? The throne of the Lord as king in the place of David his father. It's the throne of the Lord. The king represents God. Second Chronicles chapter 9. All right. Second Chronicles chapter 9, uh, verse 8. Blessed be the Lord your God. This is the queen of uh, Sheba talking. Blessed be the Lord of your God who has delighted in you and set you where? On his throne as king for the Lord your God 
He set, he set you on his throne as king for the Lord your God. Jump over to chapter 13, verse 8. And now you think to withstand the kingdom of the Lord in the hand of the sons of David, because you're a great multitude and have with you the golden calves that Jeroboam made you for gods. Now what, what's the point? You have to understand exactly how God viewed the king who ruled over his people. He sat on God's throne, ruling over God's people, because it was God's kingdom. All right, It was different than the other kingdoms of the world. Because this guy sat on God's throne. He represented God to the people. Well, how is God going to rule his people, making his will preeminent in the kingdom now? Jesus, right? The king carries the burden of obedience. Here's what you read. When you read through Chronicles, what's different than First and Second Kings, it says the people did this, the people did that. In the Chronicles, you know what you find? You find when the king disobeys, the people follow his lead. You see that over and over and over again. As the king went, so went the nation. Now, you know, I don't want to s- slip into lecture mode here too much, so I'm just going to tell you. In 2 Chronicles 28 and 2 Chronicles 29, you see that clearly. As the king went, so went the nation. What king will, the question is, what king will lead God's people in obedience so that God blesses them because of his obedience? God blesses them because of the king's obedience. Where does that take us? It takes us to Jesus, does it not? And in this book, you find that the king guarantees pure worship at the temple. It's not the Levites. It's not the priests. It's the king. In all, of the, in all of this, you're going to see that it's the king who guarantees pure worship at the temple. As you read through this book, you see that the king always leads in purifying the temple. Because what happens is a wicked king ascends the throne. And what happens to the temple? It's ignored. It it's, no, it's disused. It starts crumbling. They lose the word of God. And then a good king comes. What does he do? He rebuilds the temple. He restores the worship at the temple. He does all that. So it's the king who guarantees pure worship for God's people. Who does that for us today? Jesus does. Absolutely. So you see that all through this book, the chronicler points the reader to the hope that can only be found in the house of David. And he's always pointing you to a Davidic king. No other kings, this Davidic king. Here's the last point, right? One people under one king. What's the last point? Joyfully worshiping at one temple. The history of the chronicler revolves a great deal around the worship of the temple. In 1 Chronicles, he tells the story of the rule of David. And what's interesting is, unlike 1 and 2 Kings, he, doesn't hardly, he hardly talks at all about David's military and diplomatic victories. 1 and 2 Kings, man, you see this battle and that battle and this people being conquered and that people. He has some of that, but not much. It's not much. Instead, he spends a great deal of time talking about David getting the ark to the temple. So that it becomes the central place of worship for all of God's people. David's story is mostly about getting the ark to the temple and making that the place where everybody comes to worship. And then he relates how David plans and works and gathers resources for the building of a temple in Jerusalem. 
Now here's what's interesting. For the first 11 chapters of 2 Chronicles, it's about Solomon. The first 11 chapters are about Solomon. But what he does is he spends most of those 11 chapters talking about Solomon and the temple. Most of those chapters, most of those 11 chapters are about Solomon building the temple and then the dedication of the temple and the great worship that ensued there at the temple. And then after that, he spends a great deal of time telling us how each succeeding king, how he related to the temple, good or bad, how did he relate to the temple. In fact, he judges the success or failure of a king and how he relates to the temple. It's about the temple. When it comes to guarding the purity of the temple, the, the kings take center stage. And when this king succeeds in purifying temple worship and leading the people back to the temple, it always describes the worship as a celebration joined with great rejoicing. Now, let's look at one example of that in 2 Chronicles 29. By the way, this is one of my favorite parts of this book. 2 Chronicles 29, verses 1 through 7. Hezekiah began to reign when he was 25 years old, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abiah, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David his father had done. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. He brought in the priests and the Levites and assembled them in the square on the east and said to them, Hear me, Levites, now consecrate yourselves and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry out the filth from the holy place. For our fathers have been unfaithful and have done what was evil in the sight of our God. They have forsaken him and have turned away their faces from the habitation of the Lord, the temple, and turned their backs. So it goes on. It, it tells about how Hezekiah restores the temple, spends a great deal of time, the whole chapter on that. And then when he's done with that, what does he do? Verse 30, or chapter 30, verses 21 to 23. And the people of Israel who were present at Jerusalem kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with great gladness, and the Levites and the priests praised the Lord day by day, singing with all their might to the Lord. And Hezekiah spoke encouragingly to all the Levites who showed good skill in the service of the Lord. So they ate the food of the festival for seven days, sacrificing peace offerings and giving thanks to the Lord, the God of their fathers. Drop down to verse 25. The whole assembly of Judah and the priests and the Levites and the whole assembly that came out of Israel. All right? There's those northern people, the ones who had rebelled. Here are people coming from Israel to join them. And the sojourners who came out of the land of Israel and the sojourners who lived in Judah rejoiced. So there was great joy in Jerusalem for since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. Then the priests and the Levites arose and blessed the people and their voice was heard and their prayer came to his holy habitation in heaven. One king, one people, joyfully celebrating 
at one temple. Again, we have to ask, what king now purifies our worship and makes it acceptable to God and guarantees our joy in worship? Well, it's none other than the Lord Jesus. In fact, when you turn to Hebrews, when you turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, the very last chapter, you find this in the final um, commands to the people. Verse 15, through him then, through Jesus then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Notice, through Jesus, they're acceptable to God. See, our hope can only rest in great David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So why did God place this book in the canon? To impress on God's people in all ages the intention of God to gather one people under one king, joyfully worshiping at one temple. That's always been his intention. Now some here, and I don't know you all very well, and I, I, I never want to neglect this. I'm going to say this. Some here may, you're strangers to God's purposes. You're strangers to this king. And here's the deal. He, like the kings of old, invites you to come to the meeting place, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the temple, and he builds a temple. And so I would say to all of us here, we have room for thanksgiving because God opens up to us his redemptive plan. Does he not? And as we go through this book, as we look at some of the, the stories, the narrative of this book, we ought to see Jesus easily. And not because we're, we're trying to do something strange. It's exactly where the book is taking us. It takes us to Jesus and the grace of God revealed in Jesus and all that he accomplishes. So I ought to thank him for his eternal plan of gathering his people together under that one king, joyfully worshiping at one temple. Let's pray. Father, as we embark on this study, we pray that you would give us hope, just as you always intended with this book, to give hope. Help us to see your redemptive plan. Help us to rejoice in what you intend to do, what you've always intended. Help us now, we pray, as we, um, as we study, as we hear your voice in this Old Testament scripture. We thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen.